As you may have heard, Easter Sunday is April 17th. It's the day of the year when people are more open to an invitation for church than any other day of the year. Since that is the case, even without any churches putting forth any effort, most churches have an increase in attendance on Easter Sunday. Uh, More people across American evangelicalism will attend church on Easter Sunday than on any other Sunday of the year, as a, again, as kind of as a general rule. Now, as a church, we want to do what we can to take advantage of the natural willingness of people to come to church. The goal of this isn't to have a large crowd. I mean, I'm praying for a large crowd. I've got a specific number in my mind. I'm praying to attend and a certain things I'm praying for God to do among that crowd. But the number I'm praying for isn't so the end of the day, we can all say, look how many people attended our church today. We pray for a large crowd. We invite to have a large crowd because the numbers represent individuals. They represent souls. We want a large crowd because the number represents people, souls, who will gather with us in this place. They will sing songs to Jesus And about Jesus. They will spend time either praying to Jesus or watching us pray to Jesus. They will hear a message from God's word about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. They will be urged to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. And if they respond, if they cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in their lives, they will be saved by Jesus. That's the point. The point is to give people an opportunity to hear about Jesus and be saved by Jesus. That's why when I talk about inviting, I don't say invite people that go to another church. Don't invite your Nazarene friends. They're fine. Pastor Craig's a wonderful person, great pastor. Don't invite your first Baptist friends. Pastor Michael, great guy. I, I trust him completely to preach the gospel. Don't invite your independent Baptist friends. I Pastor Van is doing a great job preaching the gospel at his church. Leave the people who go to church somewhere else alone. Invite those who don't go to church. Invite those who openly say they don't know Jesus, they aren't saved. Right? We do this because we're not trying to, to shift the sheep from one flock to another. We're trying to give an opportunity for the Spirit of God to move into people's hearts and lives so we can see lost people saved. We can see prodigals restored. We can see broken hearts healed. We can see captives set free. And we can see the spiritually dead raised to new life in Christ. That is the goal. So what I'm going to do this week and next week to to prepare our hearts for Easter is one thing. I, I will encourage us every week to invite people within our sphere of influence. Invite them to come to church. Talk to them. Remind them. Don't don't pester them to the point that you become a nuisance, but stop just shy of becoming a nuisance to invite them. Offer to go get them. Offer to cook them lunch. Offer to take them out to lunch. And make sure you save a seat for them. Do whatever you can to ensure they know they're welcome. That you want them here because you care about them and you want them to be with you. And to help prepare our hearts for Easter. To... To motivate us to these things, 
We're going to spend the next two weeks looking at just basic gospel truths. Nothing, nothing deep that we don't already know. But just basic fundamental gospel truths to stir our affections for Jesus. And to renew our faith in the saving power of Jesus. So that as this happens, we will be motivated to pray for our Easter service and pray for the people we invite. We will invite people and then we will continue to pray and invite some more. So with that in mind, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 is the only verse we're going to look at today. And I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's word. Therefore, he is also able to save forever, or in the King James, the uttermost, to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Title of the message this morning is simply Jesus saves. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you for your greatness and your goodness. We thank you. The great privilege we have to gather in your house today to study your word, to hear what you have for us. Oh, Lord, remind us afresh about the saving power of Jesus this morning. Father, we know he saves because we're saved. But Lord, for many of us, we've been saved for a long time. And we can, if we're not careful, we can kind of get over the wonder of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Use this week and next week to change that. Use this week and next week, Father, to stir our hearts and to stir our affections for Jesus. Renew our hope in the cross. Renew our faith in the saving power of Christ. Motivate us to do what we can do to reach our friends and relatives and associates and neighbors with the good news of great joy that a Savior has come. Fill me with your spirit this morning and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. Take the word and drive it deep into all of our hearts. Father, you know what needs to be done in our lives. You know what what works need to happen to, to make us a little more like Jesus. Do that today. We surrender ourselves to you. We offer our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears and our mouth and our desires and our wills. Lord, we're yours. You sanctify us in the way you see fit. You draw us to you in the ways we need to be drawn. And you launch us out into this community. Weapons in your hand to to penetrate the darkness. To plunder hell in order to populate heaven. Father, let your kingdom come this morning in our midst. And let your will be done right here, right now, as it will in heaven. And do this over and over again until we see Gaiman one for Christ. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now the main theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus' sacrifice is greater than than all the sacrifices of the law. Jesus is the greatest there is. And anything we suffer in this life in our service to Him is worth it because in the end we get Jesus. Now today, based upon what we see in this verse, we're going to focus on Two gospel truths to renew our confidence in the saving power of Jesus. So we will pray for our Easter service, invite people to come and pray all the more. First gospel truth, Jesus can save anyone who comes to him. 
He is able to save forever those who come to him. Jesus is able to save those who come to him. Jesus can save anyone who comes to him. But question, who is anyone? I mean, does it really mean anyone? Does anyone mean homosexuals or can Jesus only save straight people? Does anyone mean Muslims? Or can Jesus only save those who have some sort of a Christian background? Does anyone mean those who may be in the country illegally? Or does Jesus only save those who are American citizens? Does anyone mean those who come from bad families? Or can Jesus save those who come from bad, rough families? Does anyone mean those who have ruined their lives in sin? Or can Jesus, can it, does anyone mean those who have lived basically good moral lives? Or can Jesus save those who have ruined their lives in sin? Who exactly can Jesus save? Well, God's word gives us the answer. One, Jesus saves sinners. One of the greatest dangers we face is the ability to underestimate the saving power of Jesus. Have you ever known someone who desperately needed Jesus, but you didn't even bother inviting them to church or sharing Jesus with them because you didn't really think they would ever get saved? Now, I don't mean you just figured they would reject the gospel or reject Jesus, but deep in our hearts, the place we don't bring up in prayer or in good company, we're not even sure those kind of people can be saved. Do we think things like there's no point in talking to them because No one in their family has ever really gone to church. Do we think things like, oh, there's no really point in in talking to them. They're they're so deep and entrenched in sin that there's no way they would ever come out of it. Is it possible we feel some people are too far gone to ever really be saved? Or that some are so uninterested in spiritual things or eternity, they'll never be concerned enough to call upon Jesus. And so... We never invite them. We never reach out to them. We never pray for them. While this attitude is is easy enough to have, it's important for us to understand it as a contrary to God's word. One of my favorite passages in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, that's that's a big statement. Unrighteous people don't go to heaven. That's the essence of what that means. Well, that's that's huge. Someone who is not righteous will not be in heaven. Now, Paul knows the human mind and the human heart pretty well. And he knows that if he just leaves it there, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, that what humans are going to do is say, well, unrighteousness is what other people do, right? Because other people's sins are typically worse than ours or worse than those that we love and we care about. And so Paul isn't content to leave it in the realm of just unrighteous. He then begins to give us examples of unrighteousness. Right? So do not be deceived. Now, do not be deceived is an important, important phrase. Because again, we're tempted to deceive ourselves. All humans are tempted to think either better of us or better of those we like and care for than we are of people we don't like or we don't care for. So don't be deceived. Right? And he gives this list of people, these sins, neither the sexually immoral or Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, 
nor the habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So there he lays out a a list of, of sins. These are unrighteous actions. And those who live in these sins have no part in the kingdom of heaven. They will not go to heaven when they die. Now, I just want to quickly, we're familiar with all the terms, but let me just quickly mention them. He mentions fornication and adultery. And that's essentially sex outside the bounds of a heterosexual marriage. Always a sin, no matter the context. Now, the term used for fornication would refer to direct behavior between people, physical sex outside of marriage, as well as indirect participation as an audience. So not only the action itself, but watching, say watching pornography or something like that, would also fall under the banner of fornication. Idolatry. Now, idolatry in our culture is seen in a couple of different ways. One of the ways we see idolatry in our world is when someone creates an idea of what Jesus is like, contrary to how Jesus is revealed in the Word. God's Word has revealed who Jesus is, what Jesus is like, and what Jesus has accomplished. And what often happens is we don't like that. People don't like that. And so they, they come up with a different way of what Jesus is like, what Jesus accepts, what Jesus is in favor of. That's idolatry. It is making a God in our own image. Idolatry is also seen when someone gives anything other than Jesus the place of preeminence in their lives. Jesus has called upon us to take up our cross and follow Him. To deny ourselves, to be a living sacrifice. All of these things paint Jesus as first and foremost of importance in our life. When anything or anyone becomes more important than Jesus and how we live and our priorities, our values, our actions, our attitudes, our speech, everything like that, that's an idol. Stealing, taking stuff not belonging, does homosexuality. Uh, the NSB doesn't use the word, does, it combines two words that are given uh, in the passage. And the two words sort of describe two different ways homosexuality was lived out in those days and is kind of lived out in our day. One refers to men who dress and act like women. Translated in the King James as effeminate. And the other just refers to a man or woman who has sex with someone of the same gender. Greedy. Uh, greed is a, described as a desire that can never be fulfilled. Greedy people can no more satisfy their desire for more than you can fill up a bowl with the bottom broke out of it. Habitually drunk. This would include what we might call an alcoholic as well as social drinkers who get drunk. Drunkenness is always a sin. Verbal abusers. Verbal abusers are people who abuse others with their words. They verbally abuse people through ranting and raving profanity and slanderous speech. Swindlers um, are people who take money and things from other people through schemes or force. Right Now, these are what we might call big sins. These, uh, until recently, none of them would have been considered socially acceptable in our world. These are serious sins, so serious, Paul says those who live in these sins are unrighteous, have no part in the kingdom of God. But notice what else Paul says. And such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. While unrighteousness keeps people from entering the kingdom, there is a way for them to overcome the unrighteousness and enter the kingdom. And it's Jesus. The people in Corinth that Paul was writing to. 
I would say they had been involved in all of those sins. Some of them had been involved in at least every one of those sins at one point or another in their lives. And yet, something happened and changed them from being unrighteous to righteous. And it was Jesus. They were washed in the blood of Christ. They were sanctified through faith in Christ. They were justified in the name of Christ. And the Spirit of God was at work in every aspect of that. Jesus saves sinners. The Holy Spirit is powerful enough to make even the most hardened sinner see their need for Jesus. Jesus absolutely can save any sinner. No one is so deep and entrenched in their sin, they are beyond the ability of Jesus to save them. So as we invite people to church, as we pray for them to come, and as we pray for Jesus to save them, let's remember, regardless of what kind of life they're living or what they have done, Jesus can save them from their sin. Another kind of people Jesus saves is religious people. We live in a multicultural world and we will forever live in a multicultural world. One of the results of living in a multicultural world is the rise of religions other than Christianity in, in most communities. Now, larger cities have always had, not issues with that, but have always had that, that, to, that is something that was going on. Smaller communities like ours, this is a newish thing. And yet, we live in a community with however many different languages are spoken at this time. Many of those people from those other cultures have brought in their own religion. Christianity is probably still the main religion in Guymon, Oklahoma, but it is by no means the only religion in Guymon, Oklahoma. Now, the people who come from other places or who are involved in other religions, they are likely very deeply entrenched in their religion. And just like us as disciples of Jesus, they have been taught their religion is right and all other religions are wrong. So there is a temptation that we can face with folks like this. One is to see them as the enemy. Uh, they're the enemy because they're different. They're other. They're not like us. The other temptation is to believe that those people cannot be reached. They are too entrenched in their false religion, too far gone. They could not be brought out. Lots of places to look, but one passage to show this, I think, best. If our gospel is veiled, is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they will not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord ourselves as your bondservants on account of Jesus. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, the glory of God, and the face of Christ. I love this verse. It perfectly refutes the two ideas. First, we see the adherents of other religions are not our enemy. They are, in fact, in some ways, prisoners of war. They have been taken captive by Satan. They have been blinded by the real enemy. This is similar to Ephesians 6, saying that our enemy is not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and all these things to show us that we have a spiritual enemy, not a physical one. Satan uses whatever means he can to keep a person blinded to the truth for Jesus the truth of their need for Jesus, so they will perish. In, in the case of the religious, he uses their religion. The religion they've grown, they were raised around, the religion they've been taught, the religion they are likely disciples of and deeply entrenched in. The goal for this 
is really just ultimately to keep them blinded, keep them deceived, so they will continue to perish until the very end in which they will ultimately perish. That's his goal. That's what he's doing. But notice, those who are blinded by Satan are not unsavable. Right? If we preach our, not ourselves, if we preach Christ as Lord, then as we do, God shines light in the darkness and he gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Essentially, as Jesus has proclaimed, the Holy Spirit takes that proclamation of Jesus. He shines the light of Jesus in their sin-darkened minds, causes them to see their need for Jesus, giving them the opportunity to repent and believe. Now, they can reject Jesus and stay blinded, or they can turn to Jesus and be saved, but they are not beyond the reach of Christ. The God who shone light into your mind and mine can shine light into another person's mind, regardless of what kind of beliefs they have. Show them their need for Jesus, turn them to Christ, and bring them out. Jesus loves the religious. And this is true no matter how they feel about Him. Jesus loves Muslims, and Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Buddhists. The person who practices Santeria or is involved in any other religion or New Age spiritism that exists in our world or in the microcosm of our community. These people are not our enemies. They are people whom Jesus loves. They are people for whom Jesus died. And they are people Jesus wants to save. Not only does Jesus want to save them, but Jesus really can save them. They may well be deeply entrenched and indoctrinated in their religion. If they are not so indoctrinated, Jesus cannot save them. There is no darkness so deep the light of the gospel cannot penetrate it. Yes, they are lost. Yes, they are very blinded to the gospel. Yes, they are often very difficult to reach. But difficult to reach and unreachable are not the same thing. Jesus wants to save them. And Jesus can save them. So as we invite people to church... Pray for them to come. Pray for Jesus to save them. Remember, regardless of what kind of spiritual or religious beliefs they have or have had in their life, Jesus can save them from their false spiritual or religious beliefs and turn them into fully devoted disciples of Christ. Third kind of person Jesus can save. Jesus receives and restores the prodigals. I think the story of the prodigal son gives us a great picture of Jesus receiving and restoring the prodigal. The prodigal son is probably familiar. Let me tell you the story if it's not. A man has two sons. One son comes to his dad and he says, I want the share of the inheritance that would fall to me when you die. And so the dad does whatever he has to do to get that much money, he gives it to the kid who then leaves and goes into a far country and begins to live a wasteful, sinful life. Party lifestyle. Things go well. He has friends. All goes well as long as you're a rich young man with money. But a famine comes in the land. And when the famine comes in the land, all his money is spent. And all his friends go away. And he's left in a bad place. So in effort to keep from starving to death, he takes a job feeding pigs. Which for a Jewish man would have been the worst possible job he could have been. He feeds the pigs day after day, day after day, and eventually he gets so hungry that he looks at the feed that he's given to the pigs and he says, I wish somebody would even give me that. He's hit rock bottom at this point. And as he hits rock bottom, 
he determines and says, man, life with dad really wasn't that bad at all. My dad's servants have plenty to eat and more. I'm going to arise. I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to tell him I don't deserve to be a son. Make me one of your servants and and I'll be content. Now, one of the ways we can see this story is of prodigals. People who maybe have made a profession of faith. People who were raised in church. Raised to know what it means to follow Christ. And yet made bad decisions and have left. Want nothing to do with Christ. Want nothing to do with church. Maybe have gone deep into sin. They've known the Father's love. But they've turned away from it. So the, the prodigal goes back. How does his father receive him? Well, the Bible says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hands? Father, I've sinned in your sight. And he set out and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. I, I, I love this. The father saw him a long way off. Now, I don't know if I could prove it from the story, but in my mind at least. I think the dad probably looked down the road, the son went. Right? Probably in a place like that, there's one way in, one way out. Probably every day at a certain point, he looked to see if he could see the son coming. And when he saw him, he didn't wait for the son to come up here. He, he ran. Now, again, I think this is a detail we can miss because we don't understand the historical context. Jewish men didn't wear pants. Right? They wore robes. I don't know what, not a dress, but basically a robe. And to run, they had to pull them up. Pull them up to about their waist. So for a Jewish man to, to hack up his robe and run was an undignified action. A proper Jewish man would never expose his legs in public and run in such a way. The father here didn't care about what was proper. He cared about his son who was coming. And his son talks about him. He fell before his father. And his father put his arms around him and embraced him. Well, if his son falls on the ground, how is the father going to put his arms around him and embrace him? He has to get down on the ground as well. And it's this great picture of the father rushing Toward the one who's coming back. So how does, how does our Heavenly Father feel about the prodigals who have strayed. Who start to come back. Well he, he longs for them to come back. And when they begin to take that first step back to him. He runs to meet them. He feels compassion and love for them. He embraces them. He kisses them. There's rejoicing in heaven that they have come back. Probably, we all know, a prodigal. And what we have to remember is Jesus still loves them. Jesus wants them to come back. And if they do, He'll restore them. He'll receive them. And when He receives them and restores them, they're not brought back as second class citizens to the kingdom of God. They are fully restored as the sons of God, joint heirs with Christ. As you invite someone to church for Easter.
Pray for them to come and pray for Jesus to save them. Remember, regardless of how far they may have strayed from what they were raised to know, to believe, to do. The Father loves them. The Father looks and longs for them to come back. And if they take that first step to Him, He runs to meet them. Jesus will receive them and Jesus will restore them. So when it says, when we say Jesus can save anyone who comes to Him, anyone means just that. Anyone. Second truth, Jesus completely saves. My Bible says He is able to save forever. Footnote says completely. The King James says the uttermost, which is what I prefer in this case. According to the Amplified, what it could be translated as, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost, completely, perfectly, finally, and for all time and eternity. I love that. Jesus saves people completely, perfectly, finally, and for all of eternity. What a great picture of being completely saved. Well, quite a bit goes into what it means to be completely saved. There are two aspects I want us to understand today. One, Jesus completely saves from the penalty of sin. God's word teaches all of sin and falling short of God's righteous standard. That's a problem because God's word also teaches that the wages of that sin is death. Through sin, we earn judgment, condemnation and death. The consequences for rebelling against an infinitely holy God an infinitely powerful God is not merely physical death, but spiritual death. The second death is what it calls it in the book of Revelation, which is being tossed in the lake of fire for all of eternity. Quite a terrible thought. That is what all sin earns. And if it just ended there, it would be a terrible, terrible truth. But Jesus can completely save us and anyone else from the punishment we have earned through our sin. So completely that when a person repents of their sins and believes in Jesus, this becomes true of them. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The genuine believer in Jesus Christ will not be judged as a sinner. The genuine believer in Jesus is fully and forever freed from the penalty of sin and the condemnation of sin. Now, my favorite part about this is when. When is the believer in Jesus Christ free from condemnation? Is it at some point in the future when they get their act together? Is there an element where they, they're sanctified to such an extent that suddenly they're free from condemnation? Is it when they believe all the right doctrines, they know all the right truths, and they've been to church a certain number of times in a year? No. Now. Now. So if, you're a, if you've repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ, right now at this moment, you are free from condemnation. If someone were to come today, repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, then at that moment, they would be forever free from their condemnation. If a person comes on Easter and repents of their sins, believes in Jesus and is born again, they are at that moment free from condemnation. Man, that is a... Wonderful, powerful, encouraging truth. We're not working off our sin debt. It's paid. It's gone. We are not under condemnation and we will never come under condemnation as believers in Jesus Christ. 
Now, does this mean we never sin? I wish. But it doesn't. We will always feel the struggle of the pull of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our sinful nature will always work against us and struggle against the Spirit of God for control over our lives. We will always struggle against this. There will be times where we win, and those are blessed times. And hopefully, as we grow in Christ, the times where we win become more and more and more, and the times where we lose become less and less and less. The times we lose, they will always be there. There will always be moments where we give in to the sinful nature and we do the things we're not supposed to do. Does that mean that the genuine believer in Jesus is brought from being is brought from a state of being free from condemnation and brought into a state of being under condemnation? No. No, it doesn't. The person who is a genuine believer in Jesus is free from condemnation. Our struggles and our failures do not change that. Our belief in Jesus is what keeps us under the umbrella of being free from condemnation. As you invite someone for Easter, as you pray for them to come, as you pray for Jesus to save them, remember, regardless of what kind of life they've lived or what they have done, Jesus can completely save them from the punishment of sin so there is no condemnation for them in Christ Jesus. But He not only saves us from the penalty of sin, He he saves us from the power of sin. Now this is incredibly important for us to get. Prior to being saved, we are slaves to our sinful nature. That's what God's Word says. After being saved... A change has happened. And we are no longer slaves to our sinful nature. Jesus saves us so completely. We are free from the power of sin. And we are not its slaves any longer. So then, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, the so then is important. Since the things in verses 1 through 11 are true, we no longer have any obligation to do what our sinful nature desires. Now, we don't have time to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Take some time this week. Read them. Read them over and over and over again. But because of who we are in Christ, because of what He has done for us on the cross, we no longer have any obligation to fulfill the desires of our sinful nature. Now, this means... It doesn't mean we won't sin. Again, it doesn't mean we won't sin. But what it does mean is we don't have to sin. We're always going to struggle. I wish, I wish it was different. I wish I could find a verse in the Bible that said otherwise. But I can't. We're always going to struggle with sin. The difference is, prior to being saved, if we struggled at all, we, we struggled from a place of defeat, from a place of being slaves to our sinful nature. After... Being saved, we we struggle from a place of victory. We struggle from a place of being overcomers. Of having the Spirit of God on our side. That that is a huge, huge thing. As disciples of Jesus who have been born again and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, we don't have to give in to our sinful nature ever. We have no obligation to do so. We can Always 
walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of our nature. We can always not yield to our sinful nature, but yield to Christ instead. That's the kind of victory, that's the kind of power He gives. Now, this, the reason this is important, one, it's important for us as disciples of Jesus to know we don't have to. To know we don't have to sin, we don't have to. We're not victims, we're victors. We're not slaves, we're free. And that's an important mind change for us. But as we begin to invite people, we're going to find people who can say, who are going to say, I don't think I could ever live like the Bible says. I don't, I don't think I could ever live for Jesus. And here's the answer. You're right. You can't. Often what we do is we make a mistake. At that point, we tell them, oh, you can do it. You can do it. But guess what? They can't. Neither can you. Neither can I. On our own, we can't. If we could do it on our own, we wouldn't need Jesus. If we could do it on our own, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. So we tell them, you're right. You can't. But here's something amazing that happens in you when you get saved. When you come to Jesus, you're born again. You're a new creation. You're given the Spirit of God to enable you to, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And you're saved from that slavery. And you're free to live for Christ. Doesn't mean it won't be hard. But it means through Christ we can. It means through Christ they can. So as we invite people to church, pray for them to come. Pray for Jesus to save them. We remember that regardless of what kind of life they're living, how deeply they're entrenched in their sin, through the power of Christ, they can be saved from the power of sin. So if I was going to give us one key truth from what we've looked at this morning, it would be this. Jesus can completely and perfectly save anyone who comes to Him. Anyone. Jesus can Completely and perfectly save anyone who comes to Him. This is what we must know. This is what we must believe. We won't invite people to church if we don't believe this. We won't pray for them to come if we don't believe this. We won't pray for them to be saved. For Jesus to save them if we don't believe this. This is a key gospel truth that must be driven deep, deep, deep in our hearts. So that it informs how we live, how we pray, how we invite, what we do. So because this is true, here's what I want us to do for the next few weeks. Think of someone you know and care for who fits into one of the categories. A sinner, religious, or a prodigal. Picture them specifically, not, not just a sinner. Someone specific. Maybe a friend. Maybe a relative, maybe a co-worker, someone that go, that's in athletics with your kids, something along those lines. It could be anyone, but it needs to be a specific person. Begin to pray regularly for Jesus to save them. Start today. We're going to have a time in just a minute for people to, to respond. In that moment, you begin to pray for the specific person. Probably all of us already have somebody in our minds. Begin to pray for Jesus to save them. And then pray at the very least. Pray every day between now and Easter. Be better to pray multiple times a day. Between now and Easter. Set 
set alarms on your phone to vibrate and remind you to pray for Jesus to save them. Pray if they're a sinner. Pray if they're a prodigal. Pray if they're in another religion. But pray. The Holy Spirit would convict them. The light of the gospel would shine in upon them. Maybe they would hit rock bottom and they would see their desperate need for Jesus. But pray. They would, Jesus would save them. And then invite them to church. But specifically for Easter Sunday, April 17th. Invite them. So there's two things with this. One is, all the stuff you read on evangelism says most people would come if they were invited. Now, I don't know how true that is. That's what, I guess that's what most people say. But if you've invited people, you know as well as I do. That's just what they say. We've all invited people to come to church. And they say, oh yeah, I'll be there. Mark it down. Save me a spot. Ain't coming. Don't come. And no matter how many times we ask them, they're not going to come. And that's we can't do anything about that. But what we want to do is we want to ensure they don't have the excuse. Right? We were raised. I mean, I was raised in church. Maybe you were as well. I've always known the church was a home for me. Even as a prodigal in the army. I knew chapel was a safe place for me to go. I knew the churches off base were safe places I could go. I've never felt the church was anything but a home to me. And because of that, I can think that's what everybody believes. But you know, that's not the case. Not everybody in our community feels that the church is a home to them. Not everybody feels that they would be welcomed if they came. And the main way we overcome that is by inviting them. Telling them they would be welcome. Come, sit with me. Come and go to church with us. Now, again, we can't guarantee they're going to come. But what we can do is take the excuse away from them. They can't say, well, I was never invited to the Free Will Baptist Church. No, they were about you and you and you and you and you. They can't say, I didn't know I was welcome because they were invited by you and you and you and you and you. <coughs> And then they have to, what they have to do in that moment is they have to acknowledge, I'm not going because I don't want to go. And that may not be that big of an acknowledgement. You know, a lot of people will say, well, I don't know that I would ever accept Jesus because I don't like your preacher. But if they have an encounter with Jesus, there's a moment where they have to accept, I'm rejecting Jesus. And if they have that moment where they say, you know what, I, it's not that I'm not welcome. It's not that I haven't been invited. I just literally don't want to go. That's a moment of truth. And that's, that moment of truth is something the Holy Spirit can begin to use to, to prick and to work into their hearts and their lives. So, so invite them to church. And then look for opportunities to share the gospel with them. God's word is clear. Jesus loves them and he wants to save them. And they can come here and they will hear the gospel and they will be given an opportunity to repent and believe and be saved. But it doesn't take a church service and it doesn't take a preacher to lead someone to Christ. The power is not in the pulpit. The power is not in the person. The power is in the word itself. So look for opportunities to be the answer 
to your own prayer. Look for opportunities to talk to them and share the gospel with them. Tell them Jesus loves them and Jesus died for them. And Jesus rose again. If they will repent and believe, Jesus will save them. Let's all stand. When we study a passage like this, even though we're talking about evangelism to an extent, we always have to start looking at ourselves. So the question for us is, have we, have I, have you? Have I come to Jesus and been saved to the uttermost by Jesus? That's an individual decision. Right? That's not something anyone can make on your behalf. Your parents can't cry out to Jesus and you get saved because of that. You, you must come to Jesus. And so each of us must make the individual choice to go to Him. That individual choice to respond to the gospel is broke up, I guess you could say, into three parts. There's repentance. A change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. Ultimately... Repentance is changing our mind about who God is and what God is like. He is not like what I think. He is like what the Word says. Changing our mind about sin. It's real. It's serious. It's against God. And whatever the Bible says is sin is sin no matter how I feel about it. And that's the change. And that that change of mind, it leads to a turning. And we turn to God from our sin. Right? Picture repentance as just doing a 180. You're walking this way. And then we repent. This is the wrong way. And I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to go to Jesus. That is repentance. We're turning from this. We're turning to that. And we do this because we believe the gospel. We believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We believe Jesus rose again on the third day. We believe that what Jesus has done is the only legitimate hope we have for salvation. Our boast is in the gospel, not in ourselves. And if I repent and if I believe Jesus has done all of that for me, the natural result is I'm going to begin to walk the way Jesus walks. I'm going to go the way Jesus goes. I'm going to to follow Him. These are individual responses. Today we're all called to make a choice. To respond to Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes and just. I, I don't like music during the invitation. Because when I was lost, when I was a prodigal, I would use the music to distract me from what the Spirit was doing in my heart. Hold on to the pew. To listen to that rather than to the Spirit. And so I, I like I like quiet. It's just us and God in this moment. What is the what is the Spirit of God using the Word of God to say to you this morning? Do you need to to come to Jesus for the first time and, and be saved? Do you need to recommit your life to Christ and, and go all in? you need to just begin to cry out for a loved one, for Jesus to save them.
whatever the need. I'm going to pray. The altars will be open after that. You can pray where you are. You can come to the altar. Just respond to Jesus in this time. Our Father, we love you. Thank you that Jesus saves. I'm amazed at the mercy and the grace you have shown to me in my life. Thankful that you not only save sinners, but you receive and restore prodigals. Lord, we lift up in this moment people to you, lost loved ones, prodigals, religious folks. Save them, Jesus. Send your spirit to work in their hearts. Make an opportunity for them to come to church on Easter Sunday. Remind us all that your power is safe. Do what only you can do, Father. We ask in Jesus' name. The altars are open if you want to come.